Good morning. I'd like to welcome everyone to Medical Grand Rounds and also welcome to the 2022 Alan M. Boyden Memorial Lectureship hosted by the Providence Center for Healthcare Ethics. I'm Kevin Dirksen, Regional Director for Ethics at the Center and the Andy and Bev Hansel Endowed Chair in Applied Healthcare Ethics. We're broadcasting live from Providence St. Vincent Medical Center on Teams Live. You can earn CME credit for watching either live or recording of this event, which is available via the same link as the invite for today's presentation. I'll be monitoring the Q&A throughout the session, so please do submit your questions and we'll hold them to the end as time permits. For those of you who don't know Dr. Boyden, he was a well-respected and world-renowned leader in local and national arenas who was a surgeon at Providence St. Vincent Medical Center for nearly 50 years. One of his greatest attributes as a physician and a surgeon was his ability to find wholeness in the doctor-patient relationship. This lectureship promotes excellence in patient care by connecting medicine with the humanities. It is made possible by the generous contributions of our supporters through the Providence St. Vincent Medical Foundation. And now it is my privilege to introduce our 2022 Boyden Lectureship Speaker, Dr. Seth Holmes. Dr. Holmes is a cultural and medical anthropologist and physician who serves in the role of Dean's Professor in the Department of Anthropology and Medical Education program at USC's Keck School of Medicine. He earned his medical degree from the UC San Francisco School of Medicine and his PhD in medical anthropology from UC Berkeley and UC San Francisco. He has written and published on social hierarchies, health inequities, and the ways in which asymmetries are naturalized, normalized, and resisted in the context of transnational migration, agro-food systems, and healthcare. He has received national and international awards from the fields of anthropology, sociology, and geography. In addition to scholarly publications, he has written for popular media and spoken on multiple radio programs. He is the author of Fresh Fruit, Broken Bodies, which provides an intimate examination of the everyday lives and suffering of migrant farm workers in our contemporary food system, for which he received the Margaret Mead Award. He is one of the founders of the Structural Competency Working Group and has co-edited the Case Studies in Social Medicine series for the New England Journal of Medicine. I am as excited to learn from Dr. Holmes' presentations today as we are to offer these sessions virtually to Providence caregivers as our 2022 Boyden Lecturer. Will you please join me in welcoming Dr. Seth Holmes. All right, thank you for the kind introduction. I believe my microphone should be working. Um, I wish I could be with you all in person in Portland, Oregon, 
um, where I have family and close to where I grew up, but it's also good to be with you virtually. So this morning I'll be giving grand rounds related to how social inequity creates health inequity, and I'll use my medical anthropology research um, focused specifically on immigration and farm labor in relation to health and healthcare. It's an honor to speak here in the Boyden Lectureship, offering ethical reflections to the Providence Medical Centers on social health and healthcare dynamics that confront health professionals and health systems at this important time, both in Oregon and in our country. So today I'll present one segment of my research that's related to social and health inequities, including implications for health professionals and health systems. Today's talk will come from my medical anthropology research focused specifically on indigenous Mexican migrant farm workers who work in the Pacific Northwest and along the West Coast. As a physician and an anthropologist, I'm especially attuned to the ethical implications of social and health inequities. And after the talk, I'm happy to answer questions about other aspects of the project that I couldn't cover in the talk. There are two primary questions that animate all of my research. The first is through what mechanisms do fundamental social structures lead to health disparities? In, for example, how do social factors influence health behaviors and health outcomes? And how can we develop what we might call structural competency among physicians and other health professionals? Second, through what mechanisms do social and health inequalities come to be understood as normal and natural, both in society and in healthcare, such that they're not questioned or challenged? and what interventions might counteract that process. To approach these questions, I use the classic anthropological method of participant observation. This method is per perfect for the study of interconnections among large structural, political and economic, social ecological, community and individual factors, including subtle and taboo social sociocultural processes such as prejudice, assumption, and meaning that are often difficult to assess in interviews or surveys alone. Participant observation involves long-term immersion in a particular sociocultural context, the collection of detailed field notes and tape-recorded conversations, and an iterative process of increasingly specific hypothesis testing via observation in a real-life context. In addition, I utilize audio recorded oral histories, audio recorded interviews, surveys, clinical chart reviews, media analysis, um, and I triangulate among all these different sources of data as well as other sources over different temporal and sociocultural contexts. For some quick numbers, the United Nations estimates that there are 175 million migrants in the world. 50% more than a decade ago, and each year the U.S. employs more than 2 million seasonal farm laborers. The National Agricultural Workers Survey indicates that 81% of farm employees are immigrants, 95% of whom were born in Mexico, and 52% of whom are undocumented. It's estimated that there are 1 million indigenous people from the Mexican state of Oaxaca in the United States, 
primarily Mistec, Sapotec, and Triki people. On a national level, migrant farm workers have ex extremely poor health statistics in comparison with other groups. While the dominant understanding of immigrant health through the quote Latino paradox or the healthy immigrant effect understands that foreign nativity confers a protective effect, if we consider subgroups of immigrants, this understanding has to be critiqued and questioned. To be specific, agricultural workers have an occupational fatality rate over five times higher than the national average. In addition, agricultural workers have been shown to have increased rates of injuries, chronic pain, heart disease, cancer, stillbirth, and birth defects. Among agricultural workers, migrant and seasonal farm workers suffer the poorest health. They and their children have increased rates of many conditions, including HIV, TB, heat stroke, malnutrition, diabetes, insomnia, anxiety, sterility, liver and kidney disease. And in addition, in this population, some recent research has indicated that farm work has been shown to have a comparable effect to smoking on lung health. But despite such poor health status, migrant farm workers have very poor access to health care. Only 5% of migrant farm workers have health insurance. And although there's a federal migrant health program funding migrant health care, it's estimated that this program serves only 1-3-13% of the intended population. In addition, despite the increased occupational injury rate, farm workers are excluded from workers' compensation benefits, including health care in most states in the US. So on to my research. The project involved multi-sided, multi-method research related to indigenous Triqui migrant farm workers from the Mexican state of Oaxaca. The research began in rural Washington state and involved participant observation, interviews, media analysis, chart review, and oral histories. Specifically, I spent five months living in a migrant labor camp, picking strawberries alongside the other adults from the labor camp twice a week accompanying migrant workers to clinics, hospitals, and social service institutions, as well as interviewing other farm employees and area residents. The research involved accompanying the majority of these tricky people as they migrated and spent three months in Central California, living first homeless in cars and a city park, and then in a three-bedroom slum apartment with 19 people looking for work and occasionally pruning vineyards and again, accompanying any of them anytime they went to clinics or hospitals. Next, I spent four months in the tricky home village of San Miguel in the mountains of Oaxaca, Mexico, in the house of one of the tricky families I met in Washington state that was being constructed as family members sent money, helping in the house construction, harvesting corn, accompanying tricky families as they took their oxen to pasture, as well as again accompanying tricky people to clinics and hospitals and engaging in further interviews and a community health needs assessment. In April of that year, I accompanied 10 young tricky men from this village as they ventured to a border town, made contact with a coyote, a border crossing guide, and crossed into Arizona on foot, were apprehended by the border patrol and put in border patrol jail. After my companions were deported back to Mexico and I was released from Border Patrol Jail, 
I interviewed border patrol officers, border activists, and civilian vigilantes in Arizona before returning to Central California to meet up with my tricky interlocutors who had recrossed the border. And then I accompanied them for another season of berry picking in Washington State. And I've returned to each of these primary sites several times since the completion of this full-time phase of research. The rest of this talk will involve the analysis of four primary findings. First, there's a subtle yet intricate hierarchy in agriculture that's based on ethnicity and citizenship. This social structure produces the health disparities that I outlined earlier, primarily through mechanisms including living and working conditions. This counteracts a common assumption in migrant health that it's the individually chosen behavior of either the migrant worker or the farm owner that leads to the sickness and suffering. Second, there's a lack of social analysis in the practice of healthcare that often leads to inadvertent and subtle blaming of the patient. And third, social and health disparities come to be seen as natural, primarily through metaphors and understandings of race, ethnicity, and body difference. And finally, there's a need for what some scholars have been developing and calling structural competency. The rest of the talk will take place in the Skagit Valley of Washington State, nestled between Mount Baker and the San Juan Islands, about halfway between Seattle and Vancouver, Canada. The Tanaka farm is the largest farm in the Skagit Valley, employing 500 people in the peak of the picking season, June through October. The farm is famous for its strawberries from the Northwest variety that were bred by the father of some of the current growers. The Northwest variety is red throughout and lasts only minutes on the shelf, unlike the California variety that we're used to buying in the store that's white in the middle and lasts several days on the shelf. The Northwest strawberry is used primarily in the dairy business by companies including Haagen-Dazs that want to be able to write simply milk, sugar, and strawberries on their labels without having to add red dye number four or flavoring number 26. The Tanaka farm is vertically integrated consisting of everything from a plant and seed nursery to a berry production and processing plant. The Tanaka farm advertises itself as, quote, a family business spanning four generations with over 85 years experience in the small fruit industry. On a practical level, employees on the farm grow, harvest, process, and sell berries, supporting the explicit goals of the company. On another level, the structure of farm work in, involves a complex hierarchy. The structure of labor is both determined by inequalities in society at large, in specifically those organized around race, citizenship, and socioeconomic status, and it reinforces those larger inequities. The structure of farm labor includes several hundred workers occupying many positions from owner to receptionist, field manager to tractor driver, and berry checker to berry picker. Anxieties, privileges, and health differ from the top to the bottom of this labor organization. So next, I'd like to run through this farm structure, briefly starting with the farm executives and moving through to the berry pickers. The third generation of Tanaka brothers makes up the majority of the executives on the farm. 
The others are Anglo-American professionals recruited from other businesses. The executives work seated behind desks in private offices and live in their own houses, many with panoramic views of the valley. They work very long hours, usually starting before the sun comes up. They often take time off during the day to work out at a local gym or meet friends to eat, and they worry about farm survival in a bleak landscape of competition and economic globalization. The farm president, John Tanaka, explains. The challenge for us at a management level is that we've got to maintain our fair share of the market. The difference is that in South Carolina, they have federal minimum wage, which is 575 an hour at the time. In Washington, I'm paying a picker 716, the state minimum wage, competing in the same market. That's a huge difference. It creates a challenge for a farmer. I would say the largest challenge for survival is probably offshore competition. For example, China. They could take a strawberry and bring it to San Francisco and deliver it to a restaurant cheaper than we can. We pay 716 an hour, and in most countries that we're talking about, they don't pay that in a day. The executives attempt to run a family farm that can survive these pressures in order to leave something for future generations. John explains, it's different than other businesses where you grow a business and then sell out or you reach a certain profit level that you're comfortable with. In our business, we grow it for the next generation, which means that when I retire, I can't pull dollars out of the company because it would leave the next generation with a big gap. And that's what we focus on. The crop managers have private offices in the field house several miles into the fields from the main farm office, though they spend significant time driving and walking through the fields, overseeing what's going on. They work similar hours to the farm executives, but have somewhat less choice in when they take breaks and when they're on duty. They're all Anglo-Americans and live in private houses in one of the small nearby towns. The administrative assistants who work seated at desks in common spaces live in relatively simple family houses near the farm, and they're almost entirely white with a few US citizen Latinx workers. The teenage checkers weigh the berries, enforce the farm rules such as the allowed number of leaves per flat and spend much of their time waiting. Both the administrative assistants and the teenage checkers worry primarily about the moods and reactions of their supervisors. The other workers live in one of three labor camps. The first holds 50 people and is located 100 feet from the road. Each shack here has heating and insulation and the field supervisors who walk outside observing and directing the pickers live here. Some treat their workers with respect while others use outright racist epithets. Both groups are bilingual in Spanish and English, almost entirely Latinx US citizens, along with one Mixteco indigenous man from the Mexican state of Oaxaca. The second camp, located a few hundred feet from the road and holding roughly 100 people, is made up of units that look the same and have insulation but no heating. This is where those who pick raspberries and apples, as well as some of the strawberry pickers live. The raspberry pickers work long hours sitting on large harvester machines and are paid per hour. 
The apple pickers climb ladders up and down to reach the apples and are paid per pound, making the most of all the pickers. These groups are made up almost entirely of undocumented mestizo Mexicans, along with several undocumented Mixtecos and a few undocumented Triqui people. The third camp, located several miles away from farm headquarters, holds 250 people. The shacks here have no heating and no insulation, and this is where the majority of the farm's laborers, the strawberry pickers who are paid per pound, live. They're made up almost entirely of undocumented Triqui indigenous Mexicans, as well as several Mixtecos. Strawberry pickers work outside seven days a week, rain or shine. They must bring in a minimum weight of 50 pounds of de-leafed berries every hour. Otherwise, they're fired and kicked out of camp. In order to meet this requirement, they take few or no breaks from 5 a.m. until the afternoon when that field is completed. Many don't eat or drink anything before work, so they don't have to take time to use the porta potty. They work as fast as they can, picking and running with their buckets of berries to the teenage checkers. A representative description of the struggles of a strawberry picker came from Marcelina, a 28-year-old woman. It's very difficult for a person here. I came to make money, like I thought here on the other side of the border there's money, but no. Sometimes the checkers steal pounds, sometimes rotten berries make it into the bucket. Eat that one, they say, throwing it into your face. They don't work well. This is not good. There in Oaxaca, we don't have work. There are no jobs there. Only the men work sometimes. But since there are many children in my family, the men don't make money for me and my son. That's why I wanted to come here to make money. But no. This is a conceptual diagram of the relationship between status shown here on the vertical axis and the variables of body position in labor citizenship, language spoken, and ethnicity. This ethnicity citizenship labor hierarchy from white and Asian American US citizen to Latinx US citizen and resident to undocumented Mestizo Mexican and undocumented indigenous Mexican fits what is being described in much of North American food systems. However, one unexpected finding relates to the relative status of Triqui people and Mixtecos. In further interviews and conversations, many Anglo and US Latinx farm employees told me that the Triqui people are, quote, more simple, while Mestizo Mexicans stated that they are, quote, los indígenas más puros, the most pure indigenous people. Here it appears that different indigenous ethnicities are understood through the classic symbolic continuum that anthropologists would critique as social Darwinism. The white and Japanese Americans are understood to be and treated as though they're modern and civilized, and the Triqui people are understood and treated as though they're the opposite, backward, simple, and the Mixteco people are positioned in between. Clearly, these kinds of assumptions about different groups of people and these kinds of biases need to be questioned and challenged. In many ways, ethnicity, education, and citizenship, I didn't take the appropriate position in the labor hierarchy. For the purposes of my research, 
I placed myself in the housing and occupations of the tricky undocumented immigrant workers. I picked twice a week and gained bodily data, including certain forms of knee, back, and hip pain. I often felt sick to my stomach the night before picking due to the stress about picking the minimum weight. For the following few days, I took ibuprofen and sometimes I used the hot tub in a local gym to ease the aches, very conscious of the ob obvious inequality of access. But because of my social and cultural capital, including my whiteness and education, the farm ex executives treated me as someone out of place, giving me special permission to keep my job and my labor camp shack, even though I was actually never able to pick the minimum weight. At times, they even treated me as a superior, asking my advice on the future of labor relations and housing on the farm. Crop managers and supervisors treated me in some ways as a jester, as a form of respected entertainment. They would joke with me, laughing and using rhetorical questions like, are you still glad you chose to pick? And as they walked through the fields, they regular stopped where I was and picked berries into my bucket to help me keep up. On the other hand, the other pickers interacted with me with a mixture of respect and suspicion. Many wondered why there was a gabacho chacan, a bald white American in tricky and Spanish, which became my nickname, who was picking berries with them. Several people believed I was a spy for the police, the border patrol or the US government, but others thought I might be a drug smuggler who was looking for a good cover and hiding out from the police the Border Patrol, or the US government. During dinner one evening in his labor camp shack, Samuel, the man standing up with the Nets hat on, complained to me, told me about the problems that lack of resources create in his hometown in Mexico and said that they need a strong mayor, a strong presidente. I asked if he would be mayor someday. But engaging in clear social analysis of hierarchy, he replied, no, you need to have education and money and ideas. You'll be Presidente of San Miguel Set, and you can do a lot of good. We need a water pump and paved roads. Near the end of my research, Samuel told me, right now we and you are the same, we're poor, but later you'll be rich and live in a luxury house, a casa de lujo. I explained that I didn't want a luxury house, but I wanted rather a little simple house, and honestly, in my head, I was thinking of a little craftsman house in Seattle, where I went to undergrad or Spokane, where I grew up. And Samuel clarified his analysis of social structures, but you'll have a bathroom on the inside, right? The social structure based on ethnicity and citizenship not only produces the labor and housing pecking order that I described, but this whole complex maps onto the health disparities that were outlined at the beginning of this talk. The tricky people embody the, uh, inhabit the bottom rung of the hierarchy in the Skagit Valley with the most stressful, at times humiliating and physically strenuous jobs with the most exposure to weather and pesticides. They live in the coldest, wettest shacks in the most hidden labor camp. After the first week of picking, I asked many of the pickers about their experience. I'll illustrate with a few brief examples. 
One young female picker stated that she could no longer feel anything in her body at all. Another said that her knees, back, and hips are, quote, always hurting. One of the young men I saw playing basketball before the harvest started told me that he and his friends could no longer play because their bodies hurt so much. And Abelino, a tricky father of four who lived near me in the labor camp, explained what picking is like. You pick with both hands at once, bent over, kneeling like this, and he demonstrated with both knees fully bent and his head bowed down. Your back hurts, you get knee pains and pain here, and he touched his hip. When it rains, you get pretty mad, but you have to keep picking. They don't give lunch breaks. You have to work every day like that to make anything. You suffer a lot in work. During my field research, some of my friends and family came and visited me at different times, and they all in different ways blamed the farm executives entirely for the living and working conditions of berry pickers. They assumed that it was entirely the growers' fault that the pickers live in such poor conditions and that the growers could easily rectify the situation. This is an aerial view of the Skagit Valley from 1936 leading up toward the beginning of my research that demonstrates two things we know are going on within the world. First, expanding urban boundaries. For example, during my research, policies changed such that Walmart and Costco bought land that had been part of farms prior. And you can see in visually that smaller family farms are being bought up by increasingly corporate larger and larger farms. In some ways, the hierarchy on the farm is not entirely willed on the part of the farm owners or managers. The inequalities are also driven by larger structural forces as well as the anxieties they produce in society. The labor and living conditions of farm workers are produced by social and labor hierarchies in the United States. The stark market competition and precarious future of family farms as well as the discretion and decisions of individual farm owners and managers. Some of the most fundamental inputs into the sickness and injuries of farm workers are macrostructural, political and economic, not only willed by individual humans. The structural nature of the labor hierarchy comes into further relief when the hopes and values of the growers are considered. The Tanaka farm executives are people who have explain a vision of a good society that includes family farming. They explain that they want to treat their workers well and leave a legacy for their children. Some of them asked for my opinions on how the labor camps could be improved for the workers. And perhaps instead of blaming only individual growers, it's appropriate also for us to challenge the unequal and harsh system in which both they and farm workers are positioned in our country. So now that we've considered the hierarchy on the farm and some of the ways in which social structures lead to and produce health disparities, I'd like to move on to consider the practice of healthcare. Medical professionals in this field of healthcare working with migrants work under difficult circumstances on many levels. Most clinics serving migrant farm workers have unreliable sources of funding and many lack state-of-the-art medicines and technology. <clears throat> Physicians and nurses in these fields 
perform many duties for which they're not trained, from requesting free medicines for their patients to filling out social service paperwork. Dr. McCaffrey, a young physician in the Skagit Valley, told me most migrants don't have any insurance, so that's even harder because you figure out how to start them on a medication and you know they're just going to be off it again wherever they go next. In addition, the clinicians often feel hopeless as they watch the health of their migrant patients systematically decline. Dr. Samuelson, another physician in the migrant clinic in the Skagit Valley explained, I see an awful lot of people just wearing out 40 something or late 30s or early 50s. They're just worn out. They've been used and abused and worked physically harder than anybody should be expected to work for that number of years. They come out with this nagging back pain. You work it up and it's not getting better and you don't think there's any malingering. It gets to the point where you have to give them an MRI and their back is toast. In their early 40s, they have the arthritis of a 70 year old and they're not getting better. They're told, sorry, go back to what you're doing and they're stuck. They're screwed in a word and it's tragic, unquote. Continuity of care is also difficult to attain due to the fact that most migrant workers move to different towns every few months. The migratory nature of the lives of farm workers means that their medical records are patchy. Each clinic has medical records for each patient that cover only the seasons during which they lived in that area. And in fact, many of the clinics had more than one record for each patient due to confusion over whether the record should be alphabetized by the maternal or paternal last name or simply different transcriptions of names in Spanish. Language differences complicate the field of migrant health in other ways. Many clinicians are bilingual in English and Spanish. However, some need a translator with Spanish speaking patients and very few clinics offer services in languages other than Spanish, including Triqui. The nurse practitioner midwife in the clinic explained, there are a lot of staff who don't want to be bothered getting a trained interpreter. They grab me and say, oh, could you be an interpreter? But this person has a right to get a real interpreter and not a five minute discussion with me when I'm running between my own patients. It's just reluctance. It's just that one more step. It's just racism. It's just being overworked because our system is a total train wreck right now. Are you sure you want to be a doctor? She asked me. At the same time that most health professionals in this field feel overworked and powerless to change the structural forces causing health problems for their patients, they also feel a commitment to work with this population. Many voiced the feeling that Latin American migrant farm workers deserved high quality health care and most described feeling a personal sense of calling to work with this population. Now I'd like to move into and analyze two representative illness and treatment experiences of Triki migrants. Abelino, a Triki father of four, who of note I saw about two weeks ago, who lived near me in the labor camp, experienced acute pain in his right knee when he pivoted from one row to the other while picking strawberries. After continuing his work in vain hopes that the pain would go away, he told his field supervisor about the incident and his boss said simply okay and drove away. Unsure of what to do, Abelino kept picking in great pain. 
Two days later, work was abruptly canceled and Abelino and I went into an urgent care clinic. Abelino ended up seeing four doctors and a physical therapist, usually without a translator in Spanish and never one in Triqui. In the intervening months, he limped around camp taking care of his kids while his wife picked in the fields. The urgent care doctor explained that Abelino should not work. He should rest and let his knee recover. The occupational health doctor we saw the following week said Abelino could work provided he didn't bend, walk, or stand for long periods. Abelino went to the farm office and asked for lighter work of this sort as he was instructed. The bilingual receptionist told him in a frustrated tone, no porque no, and didn't let him talk with anyone else. After a few weeks, the occupational health doctor passed Abelino's care to a busy rehabilitation medicine physician who told Abelino and me that he must work hard picking strawberries in order to make his knee better. She asked me to translate that he'd been picking incorrectly and that he hurt his knee because he didn't know how to bend over. But notably in her rush, she hadn't asked Abelino any details about his work, including how he bent over. Years later, Abelino still tells me that he has occasional knee pain and that, quote, los médicos no saben nada, the doctors don't know anything. As someone working in medicine and at the time of this original research training in medicine, this statement was very disconcerting. Crescencio, another tricky man living near my labor camp shack, approached me after picking one day and asked if I had any medicine for headaches. He explained that every time a supervisor calls him names on the job, makes fun of him or reprimands him unfairly, he gets an excruciating headache in the center of his head. He told me that the headaches made him prone to anger with his wife and children. And he told me that he did not ever want to become violent with his family and wanted help for his headache before that could ever happen. He had seen a few physicians about this in the headache in Mexico and the US, as well as a traditional tricky healer but nothing had helped long term. The only thing that made his headache go away was drinking 20 to 24 beers. Then he would wake up without a headache. He explained that he had to use this remedy a few times in an average week. And I suggested he go into the local migrant clinic to see if they could try something new for his problem. I imagined they might start with migraine medications or try diagnostic tests and treatments for other headaches. A week later, he told me that he'd seen one of the doctors in the clinic, but that, quote, they didn't know anything. Later, I interviewed this physician about the interaction. She was trained in one of the highest ranked medical schools in the US and chose to work in this clinic because she wanted to ameliorate the suffering of underserved populations. She was smart, idealistic, caring, and hardworking in the midst of a busy and sometimes understaffed clinic with changing funding structures. After looking at her notes in his medical chart, she explained, well, yes, he thinks that he's the victim and thinks that the alcohol or the headache makes him beat his wife, but really he's the perpetrator and everyone else is the victim. Until he owns his problem, he can't really change. Nothing really works. None of these migraine medicines or anything, but put people in jail because then they see a show of force. That's the only thing that works because then they have to own the problem as theirs and they start to change. 
He came to see me once and I told him to come back two weeks later after not drinking, but he didn't come back two weeks later. Instead, he came back a month later. It looks like he told the doc he saw that time something about when people at work tell him what to do, it makes him mad and that's what gives him a headache. He needs to learn how to deal with authority. We referred him to therapy. Do you know if he's going to therapy? Unquote. Despite this physician's impressive idealism and good intentions, her busy, difficult job and her education did not allow her to see the social context of the suffering of her patients. To summarize thus far, social structural inequities, such as living and working conditions that are organized around ethnicity and citizenship hierarchies, determine the hierarchy of health on the farm. Due to their location at the bottom of the pecking order, undocumented treaty migrant workers endure more than their share of injury and sickness. Yet by and large, the clinicians working in healthcare do not see this social context. In this case, socioeconomic, political, and symbolic structures impinge not only on migrant workers and their health, but also on the health professionals trying to serve them. In his book, The Birth of the Clinic, Michel Foucault describes the theory of the clinical gaze. He explains that there was a change in clinical medicine around the time of the advent of cadaveric dissection or anatomy. Whereas physicians used to focus on the words of the patient, the symptoms as expressed by the patient, he ex Foucault explains that they began to focus instead on the diseased organs, treating the patient more as a series of objects making up a body. In Foucault's description, the primary question changed from, quote, what is wrong to, quote, where does it hurt? As would be expected within this paradigm, the rehabilitation physician and the migrant health doctor described earlier saw the tricky bodies in their offices, yet were unable to imagine and engage the human and social context that led to their diseases and injuries. Yet since the time of Foucault, the paradigm of biopsychosocial health has been taken up in medicine and pu public health. Beyond the acontextual gaze theorized by Foucault, physicians in North America today are also taught to see behavioral factors in health, such as exercise, diet, and substance use. Behavioral health education has been added as part of the laudable move to broaden our understanding of health. However, without being trained to consider the social, political, and economic structures that shape the suffering of their patients, health professionals are equipped to see primarily only biological and behavioral determinants of sickness. Thus, even well-meaning clinicians are limited, in a sense, to blaming the sickness on the patient. For example, the assumed incorrect bend while picking or the supposed trouble with authority. Without appreciating the hierarchies, the social hierarchies that position their patients in particular risk scapes in the first place. Ironically, the progressive move to include behavioral health in medical education without the correlate inclusion of the ways in which social structures influence behavior, what some of us are calling structural competency, may be exactly that which limits clinicians to blaming the victims of health disparities. So we've considered the first primary findings outlined at the beginning of the talk. So we'll move on to the last. 
how is it that the stark social inequalities and their correlated health disparities are largely unchallenged and unquestioned? How have these social and health inequities come to be understood as normal and natural in society and in healthcare? In perhaps in even broader terms, how do certain groups of people come to be written off by a society perceived as though they deserve their poor social standing and poor health? Aspects of my work on this question are reminiscent of Pierre Bourdieu's theory of symbolic violence. This theory explains that we perceive the social world through cognitive schema or lenses. These cognitive schema are produced by and reflect the social structures to which we've become accustomed in our societies. Thus, we often misrecognize the social order as natural because that which we're perceiving matches the lenses through which we're perceiving it. The inequalities comprising the social world are thus made invisible, taken for granted, or normal for all involved. When I asked a Mestiza Mexican social worker why tricky people had only berry picking jobs, she explained, a los Oaxaqueños les gusta trabajar agachados. Oaxacans like to work bent over. Whereas, she explained, Mestizo Mexicans, called simply Mexicanos, get too many pains if they work in the fields. Later, I asked the farms app. Um, okay, I'll close soon. I asked the farm's apple crop manager why I hadn't seen any tricky people harvesting apples, the field job with the highest pay. And he explained, the Oaxacans are too short to reach the apples. They're too slow. They have to use ladders a lot more than some of the other guys. And besides, they don't like ladders anyway. He continued that Oaxacans are perfect for picking berries because they're lower to the ground. These representative statements show a perception of bodily difference along racialized lines that serves as the lens through which symbolic violence occurs. In this way, each category of body is understood to deserve its relative social position. Because of what's perceived to be their natural characteristics, indigenous Mexican bodies were perceived as though they belonged picking berries as opposed to other jobs. And on the other hand, mestizo Mexicans and white Americans were perceived as though their bodies did not fit in the picker category and belonged in other positions. So to return to the two questions with which we began, how do social structures lead to health disparities and why do we as a society not challenge these actively? We've seen that there's an ethnicity citizenship hierarchy within our food system and within our society. Next, the data suggests that this social structure determines health behaviors and health disparities primarily through working and living conditions. And perhaps most interesting and novel and troubling are the ways in which these inequalities in society and in health come to be understood as normal and natural. We've seen that social structures impinge also on migrant health practitioners, such that they tend not to see the social determination of health. Rather, they often inadvertently and subtly blame their patients for their sickness. More broadly, we've seen that these social and health disparities are understood to be natural due to perceptions of ethnic body difference. <clears throat> these processes of normalization and naturalization are critical to understand 
because they serve to justify social structures and health disparities. This justification then fosters their persistence and reproduction. So if we as a healthcare community are to work toward effectively improving the health of all, we must engage in research to uncover linkages among these social structures, community level factors, and individual behavior and health. In addition, we need to develop something like what we're calling structural competency, such that we're able to perceive and respond to the negative health effects of social, economic, and political inequities, both in our individual clinical encounters, as well as outside in our health systems and advocacy work. Finally, part of structural competency is what Dr. Helena Hansen and others have termed structural humility, in which we understand that it's important for health professionals to learn from, support, and join with communities of patients and families as they work towards social and health equity in their own ways. This research suggests many levels of potential intervention from public health interventions beyond to issues of mass media portrayals to health systems and clinical individual clinical encounter changes to public policy and globalization. And I'm happy to answer any questions, although I think someone will have to type them into the chat or text them to me because somehow you all sound a bit robotic on my speakers. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Holmes. Thank you, Dr. Uh, Dr. Kevin Holmes. here uh, back Kevin uh, here. to help facilitate back some of the Q&A. Uh, can, can you hear me, Dr. Holmes? Can you hear me, Dr. Holmes? I can. Great. So uh, we've got a few so, questions uh, that were uh, submitted here and we'll uh, just sort of release we'll, uh, a few of these and uh, talk through for the time that we have remaining. Maybe uh, uh, Q&A moderators uh, prerogative, I'll ask a question about, since this is a lectureship we have in the medical or health humanities, I think many might be interested in this uh, uh, notion of a medical anthropology and uh, somebody who went to medical school going and doing research uh, in um, Oaxaca and uh, crossing the border and being embedded in uh, farm uh, labor. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your personal journey to become a medical anthropologist and what someone who might be interested in that work uh, would uh, offer uh, to, to folks? Sure. Um, also, let me know if I should mute my microphone while you're speaking in case that causes uh, feedback in any way. So I grew up primarily in Washington State in Spokane, Washington and Eastern Washington, and I grew up largely on a farm. Um, and when I was growing up, my parents, um, who had grown up themselves in Mississippi, had wanted us, uh, my brothers and I, to grow up in a way where we were more aware of the world and not just um, the privileges that we had as um, white people with parents with good jobs in in uh, the rural U.S. And they took us on trips where they volunteered in different capacities in different parts of Latin America. Um, so in a certain way, I grew up starting to wonder about um, why are some people wealthy and have access to good jobs and other people don't. And I understood that it wasn't about 
their individual behaviors or individual smartness. It was more about where they were born and the ways they were treated and either treated well or discriminated against. As I applied to medical school, um, I well, actually, as I started medical school, so my first year of medical school at UC San Francisco, I loved a lot of my classes. Anatomy was interesting. Seeing patients was interesting. Living in this very diverse city was interesting. At the same time that I wanted, I, I was a little concerned that we weren't talking about some of the social inequalities that it seemed clear were affecting the health of our patients. I remember um, seeing a study that children with asthma in one particular neighborhood of San Francisco, Hunters Point and Bayview, were five times more likely to die from their asthma than children with asthma in the rest of the city. And I remember being concerned about it and trying to bring it up with classmates and professors. And I remember being troubled that it didn't seem like very many other people cared that much about it at that time. They they wanted to study anatomy and be ready for the exam, which also makes sense. Um, and I started to think about, are these inequalities in asthma in San Francisco related to lack of education, that people don't know how to use inhalers, or lack of insurance or access to healthcare, that they can't get the right prescriptions, or how much of it is related to the fact that the shipbuilding plant, the medical waste incinerator plant, the electricity plant, are all located in Hunters Point Bayview. And then how is that related to a history of our democracy being unequal, where certain people based on racialized understandings and structural racism have less say when um, they go to, they have meetings or they go to the government and say, we don't want this in our neighborhood and other people have more say. And so I got interested in all of that. I ended up after my first year of medical school, I contacted people at UCSF about doing the PhD in medical anthropology that was joint between UCSF and UC Berkeley as a way to think through these inequalities and get involved in, 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 in certain ways at a more population level about thinking how we can have a more equal and healthy society for everyone. Um, and it, through support from faculty and support from um, the National Institutes of Health, which supports social sciences, I ended up being able to do the MD-PhD program in medical anthropology um, and then have had different jobs uh, since then, joint, you know, in different ways in anthropology and public health and in relation to medical school, medical education and clinical work. So thanks for the question. Yeah, thanks for that response. Yeah, that response. Another question here that I've released into the chat. As a native Portlander, of this I knew, how can anthropologists continue to learn about and follow up to save those who labor for I couldn't understand you very well. I'm sorry, we're trying to move can you see the chat, chat. event when I, uh, I might I'll stop presenting and see if I can see the chat.
There's nothing in the chat, but if Kelsey could text it to me, I can see it on my phone. All right, we'll try here again, Dr. Holmes. Uh, the question is, as a okay. native Portlander, I'm shocked how little of this I knew. How can non-anthropologists continue to learn about and follow health issues faced by those who labor in our fields? Labor in our fields. Okay, that's now I understood you. Thank you very much. So I have two thoughts. One is um, there's an amazing group in Oregon. In certain ways, you're lucky to be in Oregon because um, there's some amazing groups. So there's one called PCUN, Pineros y Campesinos Unidos, that's a very, um, has a long history as a farm worker and forest worker union, including many um, immigrants from different countries, including many indigenous people. Um, they do wonderful work. And then from that union, there is another organization called CAUSA, C-A-U-S-A, that advocates for policy changes in Oregon that work towards immigrant rights and farm worker rights. Um, there's another group called CAPACES in Oregon that trains farm workers to be involved in civil society in different ways so that even in rural Oregon, where currently in rural Oregon and rural Washington and rural California, in some towns where a majority of people are Latinx or Mexican-American, still the city council or the county um, controllers are all uh, white people. And so their capaces also works to make our democracy more um, effective and diverse. I also want to point out the structural competency working group. So if you have time today at noon, I'm giving a lecture about structural competency. And afterwards, I'm leading a workshop with a colleague, Ariana thompson Lostad, Dr. Ariana thompson Lostad, related to this framework of structural competency. Um, and I'm happy to, I'm not sure if I should give much of a preview of that, but I've talked a little bit. This. This um, framework has been developed by physicians, patients, social scientists, um, nurses, social workers, all working together to think through how can we train in a helpful and um, kind of relevant way clinicians to understand these social political structures and to have an ima imagination where they can think through them to um, uh, think through how to respond to them. There is um, several of us worked on these case studies in social medicine in the New England Journal of Medicine. Um, some of these teach ideas like a structural differential in addition to the clinical differential. That's the one on the right. Um, actually, that's not the one on the right. A different one does that in the New England Journal. And there's another set of case studies that teach social science concepts for clinical use and health systems use that's in the journal BMJ Global Health specifically related to migrants. Um, so if you're interested in looking more into structural competency, um, I think the structural competency working group would be happy to be in touch um, and you're invited to the noon lecture as well.
So, Dr. Holmes, we've officially so hit time, but I feel like time, because of tech issues, I don't want to steal a question uh, from the group. Last one final question. As global temperatures and severe weather events increase, what impacts to health should we expect? I'm not an epidemiologist or medical epidemiologist, but assume that you and your presentation evidence the increase of morbidity uh, for vulnerable populations, those who live outside, work in the field, impacted by financial insecurity. Etc. In terms of mortality, how do we prevent farm workers from dying in severe heat events, as was the case in Oregon? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, so there have been there have been multiple uh, farm workers in Oregon, California, and Washington, and other states who have died of heat exhaustion, heat stroke, and as we have more extreme weather, as you point out, um, climate change in different ways, but sometimes more heat, sometimes more rain, sometimes more snow, sometimes drought. Um, this, the people who are most exposed to the weather are most at risk. And in, in our food system and in our society, that means especially farm workers who are especially um, Latin American or Mexican American or Latinx, um, as well as Haitian American and Haitian are experiencing morbidity and death. There have been policies passed in different states, some um, thankfully led by migrant farm worker unions, some also co-led by groups of physicians and health professionals in California and other states um, requiring breaks when the heat is beyond a certain temperature requiring shade that is accessible, requiring water that's below a certain temperature that's accessible. All of those things are super important. And it's important that we as a society fund groups like the Occupational Safety and Health Administration and the EPA to actually check and enforce and make sure these things are happening. Um, what I've seen in a lot of my um, participant observation research is that um, laws that are meant to protect farm workers are not always followed. So it's also important for us to fund the organizations that make sure that they're being, that those policies are being followed. And um, as mentioned, I think it's really important that we pay attention to what migrant farm workers themselves are saying. And in Oregon, that could include PCUN, PECUN, CAUSA, CAPACES, and other groups. Um, in Washington State, there's a group called Familias Unidas por la Justicia, and there's also the United Farm Workers Nationally. There are other groups as well. Those are super important questions. Thank you. Well, on behalf of well, the Providence St. Vincent, Vincent uh, Grand Rounds program and the uh, Providence Center for Healthcare Ethics, I want to thank everybody for making the time to join us this morning and to Dr. Holmes for joining us virtually. We would have loved to uh, welcome you out to Portland uh, here in person, but we'll have to do it another time. Thank you so much for your presentation, for these questions, and uh, ask everyone to be well. Thank you. Thank you very much.